Hello, and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today we're going to explore how political proficiency can translate into positive progress in your career. As always, please follow us on LinkedIn and make sure you subscribe so you can always get the latest updates. As a Navy officer in my career, I had learned a lot about what it takes to be able to progress and realized that a lot of that insight translates into many corporate and even government civilian positions as well. So pardon me if I use Navy ranks as the um, delimiter, but it's just a point that I'd use with a lot of people for counseling. You'll promote to lieutenant commander, which is usually you make that at about the 10-year point, based on technical skills. You'll promote to commander, which you make it about the 16-year point, based upon proven management skills. You promote to captain at about the 22-year point based on proven leadership skills. But you promote to admiral based on proven political skills. And these skill sets are orthogonal. That is to say, they don't necessarily reflect one to the other. You can make progress in one. It doesn't give you progress in anything else. It's like going... North is not going to take you any farther west. So one of the difficulties in many career paths is we offer training and coaching for whatever skill level a person is at, rather than get ahead with training for the next level. Many brilliant technical people get promoted to management, and then they do poorly. Thus, the Peter Principle, people are promoted to their level of incompetency, starts to make sense. Someone's good at a job, so they get a promotion. They're good at that job, so they get another promotion. Now they're in over their head and they do poorly and remain stuck and are no longer considered promotable. It turns out that different skills are needed at different times in a career path, and failure to get ahead of the power curve often results in careers being topped off, unhappiness, and unfulfillment in a job, and a resigned attitude. My goal in this podcast is to help you understand the lay of the land, how to navigate even without a mentor, and make sense of how some people sell ahead while others wallow in shoal water. Now, even if you're at the point in your career where you like your technical work and really don't want to be bothered taking a management position, just remember at some point in your life you were thrilled to be able to ride a two-wheeler and vowed never to go back to a tricycle. Yet I would suspect that most, if not all of us listeners, progressed past the first bike and got a driver's license. Some of us even kept going and got a pilot certificate. But the point I'm trying to make is don't assume you know what you want to be at some point in the future. We all grow and we change continuously. It's been said when you stop growing, you start dying. And I want you to keep growing. So let's get on with what I hope you find will be valuable career wisdom. Albert Einstein described compound interest as the eighth wonder of the world, saying he who understands it earns it and he who doesn't pays for it. Today, we're going to talk about the compound interest in the cyber world, and in fact, most professional careers, office politics. If you understand and apply it, then it can benefit you. And if you don't, then you'll likely pay for your lack of understanding. I think we can all think back to certain folks in our careers who are able to climb the corporate ladder much more quickly than others. And if you look at them compared to their peers, you might even say to yourself, I don't see why this person got promoted. He or she only is a couple years in this role. 
compared to someone else who's been there much longer. Now, if promotions only happen for time and grade, you'd be 100% correct. However, promotions are about a lot more than just time and grade or even how hard you work. So let's look at how people typically get promoted in an organization and learn a little more about what it takes to be good at office politics. Most organizations promote people based on a variety of skills that we have categorized into four general classes. And those classes of skill sets are technical skills, management skills, leadership skills, and political skills. We'll start with technical skills. Let's look at any new hire into an organization. When someone first comes in, it's a proverbial newbie fresh out of college, they pretty much have one thing. They have hope and promise to become successful. The problem is, while their heart is in the right place, the lack of experience of new hires often leads to poor judgment. So the main focus for new hires is to get them properly trained. Training is usually technical in nature. Just think about a new programmer in an IT organization. Company hires that person to write code. Doesn't matter if this person has fantastic soft skills and can sell ice cubes to Eskimos, as they used to say. The organization needs someone who writes software. And if that person can't code, well, they're likely going to go on a performance improvement plan, which is not always advantageous to a career. So if the junior level employee wants to get their first promotion, the best guidance is to develop technical skills. Spend your first five to 10 years in a profession learning to get really good at something. These sets of primary experiences are going to influence and shape how you grow in your career. Let's take the example of someone who starts by working in an IT help desk and gets good at it. That employee has learned how to troubleshoot what's wrong, how to work well with customers, how to look up information to solve key problems across a variety of things, and whom to call when something is so messed up you can't fix it yourself. Now, the key in your first couple of roles is to solidify your technical understanding. Remember, nothing is more dangerous than someone who believes they understand something, acts as the expert, and gives the wrong technical advice. Others who lack understanding will listen and be blindly taken down the wrong path. Next are management skills. Okay, we'll fast forward 10 years into your career. You're someone who has demonstrated core competencies in at least three job areas. You've worked for three different bosses. You've seen good things and bad things, and you're starting to build a reputation as a hard worker who gets the job done and is skilled technically is demonstrated by the ideas you come up with. And at this point in time, you're going to be considered for a first-time manager role. Now, the organization is thinking, well, this individual knows the tooling and process so well, they should begin to coach others and be the boss over a team. Now is the time you must shift from being good at technology to being good at managing people. And this is an entirely different set of skills. To be good technically, you just need to know the right answer, which may only be a single Google search away. However, to be a good manager, you must focus on your soft skills. Are you a good listener? Do you understand how people are feeling? Do you know what it takes to get better performance from certain worker that seems not to care as much about the job or company as appears? Now, this is tricky. One of the mistakes that new managers make is they treat people how they want to be treated in their career. For example, perhaps you had a micromanager whom you hated because they were constantly checking on everything you did. So you decide to be the manager who sits back and trusts your people and lets them come to you. Now, this might work well for the folks who've been there longer in the organization. However, new hires might view the bosses distant. They feel they're not getting the guidance or the attention to help them grow their careers. And worse yet, some inexperienced workers may make significant mistakes that could have been prevented with proper oversight. 
Therefore, when you become a first-time manager, focus on coaching and managing others how they want to be coached and, in fact, how they need to be coached. If someone likes to talk and get to know you for a few minutes before they talk about business, be the kind of boss that picks an interest in chatting. Up to a point, of course. You don't waste your time. It'll make all the difference. And if someone wants fewer meetings so they can deliver more results and you see that it works, enable that person to get out of meetings. A few years back, Reebok made a series of commercials featuring Terry Tate, office linebacker. The CEO hired this massive NFL lineman who changed the culture by aggressively correcting employee misbehavior in the office. Now, we're not saying tackle people to remove inefficiencies. That'll probably get you fired. We are saying be the office linebacker who finds objects that need to be moved out of the way for your subordinates and do just that. If you can remove the things that make their lives suck, then They'll follow you just about anywhere, and that's what makes the beginning of a good leader. Okay, back to another sea story. So in the Navy, the senior officer on board a ship is a commanding officer, and the second command is the XO, or the executive officer. And I served for a number of COs and XOs in my career, and I remember as a junior officer, I had worked for two XOs that were excellent managers. And unfortunately, only one of them was a really good leader. The one officer that I first went to work for, he always knew what was going on. There was always a line of people standing outside of his office, and he was kind of like Mr. Spock there. No emotion, just writing things down, approving things. And I can remember bringing him a message to be released or some paper, and he looked at me and he said, what about such and such? And you know what? I hadn't thought about that. It's like, ah, I went back and I looked it up and I got the answer. And then he said, okay, fine. And the next time I came to him, he's like, what about this? And it's like, ah, oh, well, you know what happened is after a couple of trips like that, it's like, I am going to figure this stuff out. And there's no way I'm going to let him say, ask me a question. I don't know the answer to. So I really started doing my homework, what we call finished staff work in the military. And then after a while, I'd bring him stuff and he'd look at it, and he'd look at it and he'd go like, all right, and sign it. Finally, I bring him things and he just signed them. He knew that he had imparted to me the concept of embedding excellence in your work. And he went on to make captain and he did extraordinarily well in his career. Another XO I had worked for was an excellent manager as well. He had a system where every department head was on a sheet there every day. This is long before we had computerized taskings and things like Microsoft Teams and Outlook and Schedule. And kept track of everything that had to go on. And if you didn't get it done in a day, it showed up on the next day's list with a number two after it. And after that, if you didn't get it done, there was a PSM after it. Please see me. Well, this guy kind of ruled by fear. He um, had a different approach than the first officer who really was very much into getting the job done and helping you along. It turned out that the second officer... Uh, never promoted a captain. They never never went on to, to bigger and greater things because eventually this very management focus only but not on leadership caught up with them. Admiral Grace Hopper said, you manage things and you lead people. And once you can demonstrate successful management skills, you'll get noticed for leadership opportunities. She was an unfortunate reality in the workplace. To whom do senior leaders give important tasks? It's not the people who have the most time on their hands. It's the people most likely to get the work done. Important tasks must get done well. Otherwise, it reflects poorly on senior leadership. So senior leadership wants to ensure it gets done and gets done well. So important and high visibility projects are delegated to those who have proven to be trustworthy. 
I was a first-time manager and had a chance to earn that trust. And now it's about earning the opportunity to make a bigger impact on the organization. To make a truly big impact, you need to be a leader. Now, there's one thing that every leader needs, followers. Now, I mean, it sounds funny, but really it isn't. It's serious. I mean, these could be direct reports or they could be folks that you influence to partner together. But leadership is fundamentally different from management. A manager can rely on rank or position to influence direct reports. Managers write promotions, bonuses, and awards, which gives them leverage over direct reports. However, leadership is often about influence when you don't have control. Charles Lauer said it best, leaders don't force people to follow. They invite others on a journey. Now, here's a classic scenario every cybersecurity organization encounters. Let's say you're an information security officer or ISO role and find a development team which has numerous unpatched vulnerabilities that are considered high risk. How would you influence those individuals to remediate those vulnerabilities? It's simple, right? You just send an email and say, here's a list of vulnerabilities. I need you to get this done by such and such a date. Well, it's the wrong answer. You're not influencing, you're telling. And the problem is the numerous unpatched vulnerabilities require a lot of work. The dev team is probably going to resent you immediately. So is there a smarter way to influence? First, you should always start with building a relationship. For example, have a quick chat with the dev team to understand their point of view and ask if they've seen these findings before. Ask about what their management is telling them to prioritize their work on. Ask about the level of effort to fix these findings. Ask them if they would prioritize appropriately how long it would take to remediate. Talk to their management and explore if you can get this increased in priority instead of immediately making them look bad or missing a deadline. This way, you can understand the issue, identify how you can influence the situation, and then act. One of the questions to ask yourself is how many people in your organization can screw things up with a computer? Usually the answer is just about everyone. And the next question is how many of those people report directly to you? And often it's not that many of them. As a result, influence strategies are huge in your ability to become effective as a leader. And influence opportunities come everywhere. Most organizations don't have enough budget. You may find yourself wanting to spend more money to buy a tool, to get more people, etc., but you lack the resources. So how can you influence an opportunity like this? You might look at pockets of money. What that means is if something is paid for, it doesn't matter if it comes from your budget or someone else's. Now, I Remember one time in the federal government where we wanted to improve the developer tooling and increase application security. The problem was we didn't have the funds. So we started talking with the chief technology officer, the CTO, and the CTO had a problem because he had funding for new initiatives, but he couldn't get certain companies through the procurement office since lawyers were taking months reviewing master service level agreements and liability terms. And well, the way the federal government works, you're stuck in a use it or lose it from a financial situation. If you haven't spent your money by the end of the fiscal year, not only do you not get it back next year, but guess what? They said, oh, you didn't need it? They cut your budget the following year. So there's a real imperative to spend it all. By the way, don't try that strategy with a family budget, but it seems to work for the government. Anyway, we created a business proposal on three different initiatives they could do with more funding. As it turned out, we got the funding from them, and they didn't have to go to management to explain why they couldn't spend according to their plan. And it was a win-win for everyone. Now, 
that's not always going to happen, but that's the sort of influence that gets people noticed. Here's a leader who's helping others in the organization, is getting more funding to help the office, and also getting involved in conversations with others, etc. It's all about influence. Okay, so you've made it through acquiring technical skills, management skills, and leadership skills. Must be time now for political skills. Professor Gerald Ferris, a management and psychology professor at Florida State University, has defined political skill as, quote, the ability to effectively understand others at work and to use such knowledge to influence others to act in ways that enhance one's personal and or organizational objectives. Okay. Michael Jarrett wrote in a Harvard Business Review article entitled The Four Types of Organizational Politics, and in his article, Michael states that organizational politics refers to a variety of activities associated with the use of influence tactics to improve personal or organizational interests. Studies show that individuals with political skills tend to do better in gaining more personal power as well as managing stress and job demands than their politically naive counterparts. They also have a greater impact on organizational outcomes. Gene Leslie wrote in Forbes a profound statement about political skill. Here's an important paradox. If you have political skill, you appear not to have it. That's because skillful political behavior usually comes across as genuine, authentic, straightforward, and effective. Leaders who aren't politically skilled, on the other hand, end up looking manipulative or self-serving, and we all know both kinds of people. Professor Ferris goes on to say that skilled leaders are masters in four crucial areas. Number one, social astuteness. You need to get your cues right. Socially astute managers are well-versed in social interaction. In social settings, they accurately assess their own behavior as well as that of others. And their strong powers of discernment and high self-awareness contribute to their political effectiveness. Politically skilled individuals combine social astuteness with the capacity to adjust their behavior to different and changing situational demands in a manner that appears to be sincere, inspires support and trust, and effectively influences and controls the responses of others. It's a quote from the, the article or the paper there. Astute workers will assess quickly whether a boss or client has already decided and efforts to keep selling another idea are only going to damage that relationship. They also know where the decisions are really made. Is it on the golf course, over drinks, or behind a desk in the office? Finally, one needs to know who the real decision makers are as compared to who's only pretending to be in charge. Now, if these don't come naturally to you, you probably need to clue into social astuteness. Now, here are some statements to reflect upon to evaluate your political skill in this area. With respect to empathy, do you find it easy to envision yourself in the position of others? Do you listen carefully and attentively when people talk to you? Do you understand people very well or do you try to see other people's point of view? If you can do that, you have empathy. With regard to communications, ask yourself, am I good at reading social situations and determining the most appropriate behavior to demonstrate the proper impression? In social situations, it is clear to me just what to say and to do, or I am able to communicate easily and effectively with others. If you're good at that, you've got your communication skills down. How about for self-presentation? Do any of these statements sound like things that 
you could say, I'm conscious of getting myself in the best position to take advantage of opportunities. I am very conscious of how I am perceived by others. I have good intuition or savvy about how to present myself to others. I always seem to instinctively know the right things to say or do to influence others. I size up situations before deciding how to present an idea to others. I think a lot about how as well as what I say when presenting an idea to others. If that makes sense to you, that means you've got good self-presentation skills. And the last of them with respect to your, your political social astuteness is collaboration. Statements such as, I'm particularly good at sensing the motivations and hidden agendas of others. I'm good at getting others to work together. I'm good at coordinating the efforts and talents of team members to bring about effective team outcomes. I try to find solutions to problems that incorporate others' views and opinions. And I am the one who can get people to work well together. Number two after social astuteness is interpersonal influence. Managers who are effective influencers have good rapport with others and build strong interpersonal relationships. They also tend to have a better understanding of broader situations and better judgment about when to assert themselves. That, in turn, helps create better relationships. Skilled influencers are not usually overtly political. They're seen as competent leaders who play the game fairly, and their graceful political style is taken as a positive, not a negative force within the organization. Politically skilled individuals convey a sense of personal security and calm self-confidence that attracts others and gives them a feeling of comfort. Now, if you want to learn more about influence, check out a couple of our previous podcasts on presentation skills and the principles of persuasion. Here are some statements to reflect upon to evaluate your political skill in this area. It is easy for me to develop good rapport with most people. I'm good at getting people to like me. I'm able to make most people feel comfortable and at ease around me. I'm good at getting others to respond positively to me. If those statements describe you, you're good at interpersonal influence. Number three, networking ability. Skilled networkers build friendships and working relationships by garnering support, negotiating, and managing conflict. They know when to call on others and are seen as willing to reciprocate. Now, if you aren't good at getting to know random strangers at parties, now may be a good time to practice. Here's some statements to reflect upon to evaluate your political skill in this area. I have developed a large network of colleagues and associates at work whom I can call on for support when I really need to get things done. I'm good at using my connections and network to make things happen at work. I'm good at building relationships with influential people at work. At work, I know a lot of important people and I'm well connected. I spend a lot of time at work developing connections with others. I'm good at making myself visible with influential people in my organization. If those statements describe you, you're probably quite good at your networking ability. Number four was apparent sincerity. Be sincere. Politically skilled individuals display high levels of integrity, authenticity, sincerity, and genuineness. They really are and are often viewed as honest, open, and forthright, inspiring trust and confidence. People high in political skill not only know precisely what to do in different social situations at work, but how to do it in a manner that disguises any ulterior self-serving motive and appears to be sincere. 
the quickest way to lose trust is to be not sincere, to be insincere. Don't be that type of person. Here are some statements to reflect upon to evaluate your political skill in this area. If you're authentic, when communicating with others, I try to be genuine in what I say and do. I try to show a genuine interest in other people. It's important that people believe I am sincere in what I say and do. Sometimes we feel inauthentic. I'm able to adjust my behavior and become the type of person dictated by any situation. Sometimes I feel like an actor because I have to play different roles with different people. So depending upon whether you're authentic or inauthentic, it really is going to reflect on your ability to have apparent sincerity, number four. Now, Gene Leslie added two more areas. Number five was think before you speak. Politically skilled managers are careful about expressing feelings. They think about the timing and the presentation of what they have to say. We used to say, do what your career can handle. There's a saying that says you start a new leadership job with an elephant gun. You get three shots. It can take down anything. However, it's super loud and takes a long time to reload. And if you run out of bullets, you just might not make it back. So the idea of having a honeymoon period or silver bullet or whatever allows you to get started. But the thing is, is that you got to think before you speak because you make a couple misstatements. People stop listening to you. They categorize you in a different way, and then you've lost your momentum. Also, number six, manage up and down. Leaders need to skillfully manage up by communicating with their bosses and keeping higher-ups informed. But this can become a double-edged sword. His research shows that the people who are most skilled at managing up tend not to invest enough energy in building and leading their own teams. True political skill involves relationships with teammates and direct reports, as well as higher-ups. So let's put this all together. We began with the four stages of most career paths. Technical, management, leadership, political. Now remember, your success in one of those areas does not translate into success in the others. I worked with a Navy captain one time who I think would have made an outstanding admiral, but he was an ineffective captain. And I think primarily got promoted to captain because one of his admiral buddies made a huge push for it. So the difficulty was is that in that career path, you had to progress through the prior realms. You had to be a technician or you never got a chance at management. You had to get to management to get to leadership and to get past the leadership to get into these political things. And he was a brilliant politician. He made stuff happen. And I remember he was in a role as a CIO, and he wasn't a big IT guy. He wasn't a technical guy at all. But his staff loved him. They say, hey, you know, we need money for such and such. Like, no problem. Went out and played golf with the comptroller and came back. Yeah, we got your money. Whereas people said, hey, we need this initiative, and he'd, he'd go play golf with some senior official, and he'd, he'd get what he needed. So it turned out that having that political capability was wonderful, but what stalled him out in his career was a lack of ability to execute at the leadership level. All right. Obviously, I don't mention names here, but I'm just trying to you know, say, can we learn from other examples? Now, to improve your political skills, you focus on a social astuteness, interpersonal influence, networking ability appearing sincere, thinking before you speak, and managing up and down. Although we've explained that the pinnacle operating principle is political skill, it needs to develop throughout your career. You may find yourself as a highly competent technician drifting from company to company and always blaming someone else as to why you never seem to get promoted. 
I have a friend who promoted to two-star admiral. And in his last job as a, a Navy captain, he made a little project. He said, I'm going to meet all the admirals in the Navy. So in that three-year period between trips to Washington and other events, he had a chance to rub shoulders pretty much with all the admirals. Well, when both of us were up for a promotion to admiral, those selection boards have 11 admirals on the board. About half are active duty, about the approximately half are reservists. And I knew three of those admirals. My friend knew 11. Guess who got promoted? So it works. And some people say, oh, these people are brown nosing or they're trying to suck up and they're trying to go after senior management with their, all their you know, shenanigans. Not necessarily. What they're demonstrating is their ability to be successful in the political realm. Think about it. For, and again, I use the Navy for my example. When you promote to Rear Admiral or go on to Vice Admiral or Admiral, you're not just dealing with a ship. In fact, you don't get to command a ship anymore. You're dealing with Congress, billion-dollar contracts, the press, the executive branch, the legislative branch. This is all political. And if you think that you can get your way to the top on technical skills and you'll figure out the politics when you get there, that's too risky. That's a liability. You have to demonstrate that you can play at that level before you get promoted to that level. And that's a mistake that some people make. And I would say I probably made that mistake is that I didn't recognize that what I at the time thought was just kind of politicking and, oh, that's kind of shameful, was in fact demonstrating a competence in a skill that was an absolute requirement for the top ranks. Now, if you look back on the jobs you had and are honest with yourself, you might find that most, if not all, of your career frustration has been because of underdeveloped or improperly applied political skills. Now, the time for that is over. You are now empowered to take control of your career and your future and reach your full potential. You owe it to yourself and your fellow workers. Become a type of leader that inspires others. Lao Tzu had said, a bad leader takes credit for himself. A good leader will share the credit with the people. With a great leader, the people say, we did it ourselves. Be great. I know you can. Hey, if you enjoyed today's show, please do us a favor and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts or share it on LinkedIn. We'd love to help more folks with CISO Tradecraft. Again, this is G. Mark Hardy, and thanks again for listening, and we look forward to providing you with more great content.